Hey, this is Peter Kafka. I'm the host of Recode Media. And in February, Kara Swish and I are going to bring together the smartest and most interesting people in the media world to Huntington Beach in Southern California. We want you to be there. It's the Code Media Conference. It's February 12th and 13th. You can learn more by going to recode.net slash events. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You may know me as someone who can predict the future, and I predict this podcast will be fascinating. You're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today in the red chair is Andrew Keene, who I've known a long, long, long time. Andrew, we're super old. He's a writer, entrepreneur, and also a frequent critic of the internet. In 2015, he wrote a book called The Internet is Not the Answer. Uh, I want to know what the question is. But his new book is called How to Fix the Future. It's all about finding reasonable solutions to the problems caused by the digital revolution, of which there are many, and of which we have just covered in a show we're doing for NBC also, is the responsibility of tech. So there's lots to talk about, Andrew. Welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you, Kyle. Real honor to be here. Oh, absolutely. I'm thrilled to talk to you because you're always such a good critic. You're such an intelligent critic about the Internet, not just, you know, yammering on about its evils, but really trying to think hard about what it does. So let's talk a little bit about your background and, and your first book and your first thoughts. Let's give people an idea of where you came from to get to this position. Uh, well, where I came from is I was an internet entrepreneur in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. I had a startup, you might remember it, called Audio Cafe. Yep, I met you then, I think. Yeah, we, we, knew, we knew one another then. And uh, it was one of those Me Too music startups that raised lots of money and then failed because it didn't really have a coherent business idea. Mm-hmm. Which and didn't was, matter at the time. Well, right? it didn't matter. It was a lot of fun. It was the yeah. most exciting. We're in, on Spear Street and all happened around here. We had a, an office on Mission Street. Uh, raised lots of money, got into the internet, had a lot of interesting, exciting experiences. Um, and then did some other business development stuff after the crash. So lived through the, both the, boom, yeah, the boom and the crash. And then I was at an event in the, um, probably in around 2003, two, no, probably about 2004. I was at Food Camp, mm-hmm. you know, which I'm sure you've Tim been O'Reilly, to. Tim O'Reilly, which we've had on Who's Had Yeah, well. yeah. And who now is a friend of mine, even though... We haven't always been friends. Um, but anyway, I went to Foo Camp uh, in the early days of Web 2.0, and it occurred to me that the dream of Web 2.0, of this kind of disintermediated media, of this media that could work because it would be democratized and we'd get rid of gatekeepers like you, wasn't such a great idea. So in 2007, I wrote a book called Cult of the Amateur, which was a critique of the sort of democratized nature mm-hmm. of digital media. It was very controversial. Well, because at the time, everyone, like, it's so interesting when you sort of fast forward to today where everyone's gone crazy, essentially. Um, but you were talking about the idea, it, it, you want to get to the ethos behind the people who made the internet, which was everybody should have a say, everybody should, everybody has equal footing, everyone has equal expertise, perhaps. There was an idea, there was a very strong ethos within, so, to give that concept of that. Yeah, and I think it was very genuine. I, I think people like O'Reilly meant it. Mm-hmm. I think they were genuine in their... Uh, wish that media would be democratized. But my critique was that firstly, curators have value. Mm -hmm. Secondly, when you do away with curation, you also undermine truth. And of course, you know, 10, more than 10 years after Cult of the Amateur, 
many, many people have come up to me and said, well, when that book came out, I thought you were an elitist and I thought you didn't know what you're talking about. But actually, over the last 10 years, I think you've been proved to be more correct than incorrect. Now, Mm -hmm. the book was purposely provocative and perhaps took a a slightly extreme view, but it certainly had an important impact. And I think it was a a valuable correction to the kind of uh, the the, the utopianism of the time, which believed that you could have this purely democratic media, no gatekeepers and everything would work perfectly. Right. I think it left out people as human beings. I'll never forget Barry Diller when we talked about this. This was way back when. And he goes, I asked him about citizen journalism, and he said, citizen journalism, how would you like citizen surgery? Exactly. And it was really, I was like, exactly. <laughs> or, or citizen uh, air pilots. Yeah, right, that kind of thing. And so it was at the time, but it was, de- it was definitely pushing back about that idea of that it, this is all for the good, you know, and this is sort of the Panglossian idea of, um, of... Yeah, and I think what was forgotten more than anything else was business models. Everyone would assume, as, as you know this better than I do, that in Silicon Valley, as long as you have eyeballs, the business model will work itself out. Mm-hmm. What people weren't willing to acknowledge was that implicit in the idea of democratized media was surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. Because if you give all this stuff away for free and everyone's spending their time blogging and tweeting and posting on Facebook, ultimately you get business models where these big companies are watching us and selling our data. Mm-hmm. And so you did that and then continued to sort of be a, a yeah. I wouldn't say gadfly because there's a lot of gadflies, but yeah. you, know, you were trying to like be provocative, ask provocative Well, questions. I've done a lot of different things. Like right. you, I sort of step in and out of media, a little mm-hmm. bit of business, business development, consulting. My second book was called Digital Vertigo, which was a kind of critique of social media. Mm-hmm. Took it, it probably should have been called uh, Cult of the Social. It was mm-hmm. a critique of the the cult of social media, which uh, it came out in 2012. And then my last book... Talk about that, because I think, again, right now, sort of, this has been a really lost year for social media, like that it's suddenly, tech has suddenly become evil in a way that people hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, And it's largely around social media. Actually, the book was called Digital Vertigo because it was sort of, it was a a rather ambitious remix of Hitchcock's Vertigo, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. I'm sure most of your listeners know the narrative of that book, a, a movie of a... Uh, an innocent man or perhaps not so innocent man who fell in love with this blonde who turned out not to be a blonde. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my point in Digital Vertigo is we've fallen in love with this idea of social media, but it's not really social. It's actually antisocial. It only compounds the narcissism and the the sort of self-centered nature of not so much digital media or technology, but our contemporary culture. Um, and it Rather than than I've got nothing against the social. Who 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 think you know social is apple pie? Social mm-hmm. is good, but the problem is is that social media was antisocial, is antisocial, and compounds all the sort of individualistic, narcissistic elements in our culture. You've mm-hmm. seen it today politically manifested most clearly, I think, in Trump, right? Absolutely, who is the kind of dystopian distillation of right. social media right. if, if we would have imagined the worst case scenario or perhaps at least in american terms the worst case political scenario in 2012 it would have been trump i mean i was i my book slightly dystopian but even in 2012 if someone had said well you're going to get donald trump coming to power riding on the wave of social media and talking about himself all the time and making stuff up i thought you're absolutely out right, of your right. mind you but of course imagine. it's ham because he really is the world's best troll he really is exactly. the most talented 
genius troll. Narcissistic troll and trollery and narcissism are sort of intimately bound up with one another. Yeah, it works. It really does work. Uh, You can insult them all you want, but it works. Oh, good. (laughs) Uh, You can insult them all you want, but it does work. Or in San Francisco, Uh, the the independent state of uh, San Francisco. No, we're not. Actually, the people who want to pull off now are right-wing people, just so you know. Uh, The most recent, the new California people, they're all... Conservatives. Well, we're going to leave them. They want. They want us out, right? So no, what? there's another new. There's always a new group. We're not leaving the United States of oh, America. Okay. Whatever. There's not enough guns to do that. Um, so they're not letting <laughs> us go. We make everything. We make. Everything. Well, they're not we letting you all. go. Where would no. be the world without Cara Swisher? Oh, stop, stop, stop! Don't be complimentary. It's not like you. Um, so, so you, so you did that, and then you wrote about uh, a third book, correct? Yeah. The so I did. The is internet's not the, not the answer. You, so, so you said, "What's the question?" Right. So the question is. What should the operating system be for our digital 21st century? Mm -hmm. And whilst I think the internet ultimately, or at least digital technology, will have to be that operating system, my argument in 2015, when that book came out, was it wasn't ready. And so I used examples like Uber and Airbnb and the rest of the sort of the P2P economy suggesting that it actually was compounding inequality. I, I developed my ideas about surveillance capitalism And the internet's not the answer was one of, I think, the first full-bone critiques of the kind of society that the digital revolution was producing. And I concluded that, for the most part, it wasn't something that we really wanted. So we had to reform it. None of my books, I I need to remind your listeners, none of of my books, I hope at least, are Luddite. They're not Mm -hmm. against technology. Although it's always easy to pigeonhole someone like myself as being anti-technology, but you know, I'm a, a tech entrepreneur. I'm mm-hmm. as connected and uh, in love with technology as anyone else. It's just that I, I think I've been a little bit more critical in understanding right. the social and economic and political consequences well, I think of the revolution. Against the backdrop of when you do talk to the leaders of these companies, they're they're unusually naive about. I don't. Maybe they're willfully naive. Maybe they know just what they're doing, and they're the most. Uh, who? Uh, I mean, well, a lot of them. They they do have a vision of like we did a we, last couple of two years ago. We were talking about AI, and literally every single leader of every company, except for Elon Musk, interesting left was Benioff. like Benioff was AI is great. It's a happy, shiny future. They they tend to go that way. They tend to like they they've stuck to this script of this is all for the good. You know, the best of all uh, the best of all worlds, the best of all whatever the best of all things in the best of all possible worlds. And so I think when I think this year is sort of a real slap to the side of their heads. And it's like, wait a minute, you have impact on jobs, you have impact on our society, you have impact on elections. Do you think they're finally getting it now? I do. I do. I think they're terrified now because I think... They're, terrified because their businesses are going to go under? Um, or they're waking know, up morally? Morally. I do. I think some of them are quite troubled. I think others are like, this is a real challenge to our business model. I, I think, you know, I'd like to see Mark, say Mark Zuckerberg, who's probably the center of this, in a more... I think it never occurred to him the damage parts of what he was doing. It was only, you know what I mean? And I don't think, he, he's not, it's not someone who cares for money that much. Or he's not, but Cheryl know. got it, right? Uh, I think they just willfully believe it's for the, they all do. It's a really, I've not heard, except for Elon Musk, who is, has his own issues too with his stuff too, like his cars and mm. everything else. I think they tend towards uh, naivete bordering on willful naivete. <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily cross over into their personal lives. So, for example, they're, they're quite careful about how much access their kids have to personal yes. technology. Yep. So they do get it as yep. long as 
getting it doesn't involve undermining their professional lives and their wealth. Right, exactly. I think that you're seeing a lot of resurgence of like uh, Tristan Harris and tech right. addiction. You're seeing the Russia stuff. The, uh, the ter- today there's a terrorism. Like did Facebook cause terrorism, it seems like. You know, there's yeah. Twitter. But, well, you, but the, I think the danger, for, there, there are two dangers. Firstly, we can flip this thing on, on its head mm-hmm. and suddenly from being our savior, technology becomes the problem. And, right. and neither of those things exactly. are true. That's, exactly. We've got to walk the fine line between digital utopianism and, and dystopianism. Right. And I think we also need to be careful, particularly in Silicon Valley, which has no memory. I think the most culturally problematic thing about Silicon Valley is this general amnesia, this mm-hmm. idea that, well, if we've thought of it, no one's thought of it before. Right. Mm-hmm. So you sometimes see that in the work of people like Tristan Harris, who have suddenly discovered that tech is addictive. Right. Well, there are lots of people who knew that before. All you right. need to do is read Nick Carr. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, Nick got yes. it 20 or 15 years ago. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so this idea that, well, we've discovered it, so it must be true. And we must right. embrace it. I think we need to be a little careful. Well, and also, and, and I mean, we're going to talk about my book, but I, I really think the most important thing, the way for Silicon Valley to genuinely grow up is to be more historical. Understand Mm -hmm. we've been through this before. We've been through it with the Industrial Revolution and other historical periods. This is not happening for the first time in human history. No, but you know they hung the moon. I don't know if you know that. Um, I mean, it was really interesting. It's an, exp- an American expression. But what does it mean? They I hung the moon. They, they did everything. They, the moon, they did it. They did, they, they're responsible for all beauty. You, know? you mean the tech guys? Yeah, they, they think of themselves that way. It was interesting because when uh, President Obama was leaving, he gave a speech that didn't get as noticed as much, but I certainly did, where he talked about this idea that tech people have this idea that tech solves all problems and maybe government isn't a problem to mm. solve by tech and that there's certain problems that don't have tech tech solutions, and it's including, um, and we'll talk about this, uh, you know, the impact of, uh, on jobs to their, the new inventions coming are quite impactful on jobs mm. in a way that, you know, a squirrel video, it wasn't. It, you know, they certainly decimated music, entertainment, journalism. Now we're going for the big jobs, driving accountants, lawyers, and things like that. We'll talk about more in, about your book. When you say they decimated journalism well, her, and music. It just changed the business plan mm. in a way that was very fast and very problematic. And I didn't, look, I don't think there was anything to stop it because this is the way people want to consume media. But it was the thing that caused the change to happen. Well, certainly the music industry. I've always, yeah. in all my books, I've written especially because I had a music startup in the mid-90s, mm-hmm. so I drank the Kool-Aid as much as everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the impact on the music industry is, is self-evident. It's, mm-hmm. it's unarguable, the impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the global revenue of recorded music dropped 50%, I think, between Napster 1999 and about 2050. Right. So there's no arguing with it, that. As perhaps it should have. It shouldn't have stayed the same way. You weren't gonna, It's like saying we should still have horses. You know, cars had an impact. And... And now whatever is going to replace cars. Like the, the other day I was at something and they were talking about self-driving cars and things like that. I said, it's not a matter of if, it's when it happens. So what are we going to mm. do about it? And right, who's exactly. responsible for it? All right. We're here talking to Andrew Keene, who's a very sharp uh, chronicler of ideas around the, the impact of the Internet and where it should be. He's written a number of books um, about a variety of things. But his next book seems rather hopeful because most of your books were not hopeful. It's called How to Fix the Future. It's certainly broken uh, right now or it feels broken. Um, and we're going to talk about these reasonable solutions to problems caused by the digital revolution when we get back. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you, whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or learn something new. Andrew, what book should I read to get better at something? 
well, I think uh, Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, read by himself on Audible, is uh, fantastic. Especially since I'm going to see him on the 20th of April. All right, so that will make me feel better. Oh, if you like him. Why? I do love him. I love him. Because it's so human. Because it's so honest. And because there's. he, 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 and and maybe this comes back to our conversation. Mm-hmm. You understand how much intense personal emotional investment is required to develop talent. Clearly, the guy's a genius, mm-hmm. but he had to spend fifteen years in his bedroom practicing the guitar Becoming to actually realize that genius. Absolutely. And coming back to the music industry, if Bruce was around now, he probably none of us would have heard of him. If he was still in his bedroom in uh, in <laughs> New Jersey, he wouldn't have made it in the music industry. You need talent you need a and r people the same guy who discovered bruce also discovered dylan oh wow all right that's great the bruce brings your book on audible when you become an audible member you get a credit every month good for any audiobook in the store regardless of price and unused credits roll over to the next month if you don't like an audiobook you can exchange it no questions asked audible helps you listen to more books by t- letting you switch seamlessly among your devices picking up exactly where you left off Start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. To get started, go to audible.com slash decode, or text the word decode to 500-500. That's audible.com slash D-E-C-O-D-E, or you can get started with just a text. Just text the word decode to 500-500. Hey, this is Peter Kafka. I'm the host of Recode Media. If you like this podcast, you will also enjoy Code Media. It's basically a live version of a podcast just like this. It's a two-day gathering of the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. Kara Swisher and I will talk to them live on stage in Huntington Beach, California. It's a very nice place to be in February. You will also learn a lot. You will help your career. You will help your company. We want you to be there. Speakers include YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki, HuffPost Editor-in-Chief Lydia Polgreen, Maggie Haberman, who you've probably heard of, uh, Adam Mosseri, who runs Facebook Newsfeed. Lots and lots of smart, interesting people. You should be one of them in attendance. Code Media is February 12th and 13th in Southern California. You can attend by going to recode.net slash events. All right, we're here with Andrew Keene. He is a sharp chronicler of Silicon Valley over the years. He's written many books, but his new book is sort of positive. Positive Andrew. How well, to fix the future. Let's talk about that. Uh, you, let's, how do we let, fix let's, the future? Let, let's not be too kind to me. <laughs> no, because you're a British guy, so you yeah, have to you, seem... You told me not to be too kind no, to you. No. Uh, positive might be a slight exaggeration, All right, tell, all right. but certainly I'm less miserable than I used to be. Ah, uh, great. And I'm cautiously optimistic that we can fix this stuff. All right, so let's talk about what we need to fix to start with. What's the problems? Well, I think the problems are four, four or five-fold uh, in, in very broad terms. The first is the economic inequality that is being created by the digital revolution. Mm-hmm. The second is the imminent crisis of jobs. The third is the kind of surveillance capitalist economy um, that is developing in the midst of the digital revolution. And the fourth is the general cultural crisis bound up with incivility, fake news. Divisiveness. And all the divisiveness and everything else that is seems to have been both created and also as a consequence of the digital revolution. So those four All right, broad that's a lot. categories, it's a lot. We can do it, I hope. All right, so let's start with the first one. Inequality. Yeah. How do we fix it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a good... You can walk the streets of San Francisco just to see. Um, well, I think when it comes to inequality, um, we need to look at the broader economy. We need to understand the role of regulation and government. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to appear like a big government European lecturing Americans on these mm-hmm. things. And I don't want to sound as if every solution requires a sort of regulatory solution. But I do think when it comes to these profound inequalities and the appearance of these enormous monopolistic companies, what mm-hmm. uh, what one British historian called private superpowers. Mm-hmm. And, they're and, countries know, they, of themselves. They're countries in themselves. They have more money, they have more power, they have more resources, and they're certainly less transparent than countries. Uh, the role of government, I think, is important. In one of the chapters in my book, I interview Margaret Vestager. The Vestager, I just interviewed her in Europe in Lisbon. So she's a real hero. She didn't is. Didn't you think? I love her. I've interviewed her several times. She's great. She's been on the podcast. So she's the kind of person who can take on these powers and make sure that the kind of economic divisiveness um, and in some ways injustice is is, is countered. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a socialist. I'm not in favor of nationalizing the economy. She's quite reasonable. People sort of try to paint her here. A lot of the companies is sort of communist almost, you know, just that she wants to stay control of everything. That's not what she's saying if you actually listen to her. She's talking about fairness. She's talking about basic fairness. Well, she's talking about sort of importing a certain set of values into the economy. Mm-hmm. Now, they may not always work in the U.S. I don't yeah. think she's interested in exporting her values to the U.S., But one of the things I think to fix the future is we've got to get beyond this idea of a single technology or a single idea um, being successful throughout the world. Mm -hmm. The fragmentation of the internet, which horrifies perhaps the Facebooks and the Googles of the world because they're so dependent on a global marketplace, might not be such a bad thing. So Vestager's values may be relevant in Europe, but not so much in Asia and certainly not so much in America. And she Mm -hmm. doesn't want to impose those, but she has a set of values. And in the book, I I describe my conversations with her. Uh, She has a set of values, which I think are very credible and coherent. And she is successfully taking these companies on. She's the only one who is. I yeah. mean, Obama didn't, and Absolutely Trump certainly not. isn't. No, I, I, we just abrogated all of it. All, all of well, it. we fell in love with it. And I, I think uh, Silicon Valley has a responsibility uh, when it comes to Obama. They did a great job seducing the guy, mm-hmm. you know, Eric Schmidt and everybody else mm-hmm. who, who, who convinced him that Silicon Valley was the solution, that the Internet was the answer. And it isn't. It doesn't legitimize Trump. But certainly, I think one of my most, I'm overall an admirer of Obama, but I'm not a great admirer of his relationship with Silicon Valley. Yeah, I don't think he had much. By the uh, end. Yeah, but I don't think he had a lot of distance. And I think even his critique of Vestager when he said, well, you're only doing this. He did it to me. Remember, he did it on Stu. I did an interview with him. But but I I think that was unfair, don't you? Protectionism is what he called it. Well, it's this idea that any time you're critical of Silicon Valley, any time you begin to take on the monopolists Mm -hmm. and change tax policy, you're somehow protecting your own industries, which I think is very unfair. Yeah, I would agree. And again, just so people don't know, Margaret Vestager is the head of uh, your EU minister in charge of competition. And, yeah, she's uh, the commissioner of, of, comp- of, of comp- antitrust. Yeah, and she's giving Google, Facebook, all of them are really tough. Ex, yeah, ex-Danish Apple. politician, yeah. ex- Had a show uh, written about her. Yeah, ex-deputy uh, prime minister of Denmark, a uh, couple of teenage daughters, woman in her 40s or 50s, extremely friendly, mm-hmm. very personable, mm-hmm. but in political terms, extremely steely. Yeah, she really is. She's terrific. I think she's coming to Cote this year, I'm hoping. Um, it'll just drive them crazy. That's pretty much why I want her there. Um, well, what's think- that? I mean, and, and, and Tim Cook said famously when uh, he had her interview with uh, 
well, I don't know if it was an interview, an, an interrogation, inquisition with her in her Brussels office. It was the worst interview he's ever had because she was the only one who, who's taken on these companies right. and changed that was over tax policy. Yeah, taxes. exactly. That was over the taxes. But she, she, what was the fine? It was. A lot. A, a large amount of billions of dollars. A large amount of money. Yes, she did find them. Um, all right, the second one. Second one, unemployment. Mm-hmm. This is my big interest. Um, well, the first is, I think, recognizing that it's a problem. Yeah. Without overdoing it, without believing again, without going the whole kind of dystopian hog and saying, well, no one's going to have a job. It's still very hard. I mean, that famous Oxford report says, predicted that 47% of jobs would go away by 2025 or whatever mm-hmm. it was. I mean, how, God knows how they came up with 47%. Why mm-hmm. isn't it 46 or 48? Yeah. I think the reality, though, is that we need to recognize that many of the skills that were essential in the industrial economy are not going to be essential now. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the most important ways of dealing with the jobs crisis is through education. I have a chapter on education. I think we need to rethink education. We need to focus on the skills we can do where we're not competing with machines, with thinking machines. Um, uh, the one thing computers will never be able to do, which we can do, is empathize. The one thing that computers will never be able to do is have what I say in the book is goals, mm-hmm. agency. And so rather than focusing in education, I think, on teaching everyone coding, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, I think we need to focus on teaching human beings uh, what it means to be human in an age of smart machines. Right. So in my book, I, I talk... Creativity is Right. So important. I talk, uh, I spend some time in a Waldorf school, in a Montessori school, uh, I have a section talking about the minimum guaranteed income, the referendum in Switzerland, which was driven by an ex-Montessori teacher. I think it's really important to connect education and the challenge of jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's important to talk about it. I think you're absolutely right to put it probably central on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Because it does lead to that, because that's where a lot of the, uh, the the populism is coming from. And people always confuse it with racism here and everything else. I think it's job-related almost. It's fear of the future and fear of jobs. Although I read that a lot of the, the Trump supporters, for example, don't believe that machines are going to take away their jobs. I think they, they think it's going to be China. Yes, they do. But it's. I think it's job worry. I think everybody in their, even in the most lizard of lizard brains, understands something's about to happen. Very similar to when the farming went to manufacturing economy. The, the, the industrial age is over, and now we're in the thinking machines age. And that's why we need, again, to go back historically. My book is quite historical. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to remind ourselves that we've been through this before. Right. In, in 1840. But no memory. Yeah, 95% of people worked on the land by mm-hmm by the beginning or the middle of the 20th century, uh, 90% of those people were in cities. Now, it wasn't ideal and it wasn't painless, Mm -hmm. but we've got to recognize we've been through this before. I think it's too easy to take, and and here I disagree with Musk Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the other people who believe that we're about to be enslaved by smart machines. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that's the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, but on the other hand, you have, the, the reason I got some of these ideas around this is Mark Andreessen on stage at Code last year was talking about how it was all better once we went from farming to manufacturing. And I don't think he understood the economic displacement that happened and then what, who's responsible for that. I think, again, it's that happy, shiny future and it'll be okay someday and some people will benefit and others will not. And I don't, I, I think I said to him, 
he, I was like, well, what happened to the family of the blacksmith? And he's like, well, so what? Like, he almost was like, he didn't say But so Andreessen's an odd case yeah. because he grew up on the land yeah. and he has a very sort of love-hate relationship yeah. with his family and yeah. the culture he's from. Right, it's, but it's interesting that... And he, and he suffers amnesia as well. <laughs> amnesia, he, but it was interesting that, that the economic displacement is the concern for me and it, he's like, it'll get, it'll get fixed. And of course he's right in the long term, but in the short term, the pain that it's causing is quite severe. Well, it's the old joke and it's not really very funny about, uh, you know, if, if, if your neighbor gets unemployed, it's a problem. If, if, if you get unemployed, it's a crisis. Right, exactly. And the idea of displacement is all very well to look at. But if it happens to you, if your whole world is taken away, and that's exactly what's happening in America. Right. And I that agree. explains much of the political um, chaos mm-hmm. and the problems and the way in which populists are, 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 are taking advantage Absolutely. of this. But, but I, I do think that Silicon Valley, I, I do think there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley who get this problem. I think they're yes. embracing guaranteed minimum income, which is a little right. problematic because I think the, the mentality in Silicon Valley is, well, there's this long-term economic uh, job crisis. Well, we'll create an app for that. Right. That's everything has an app. Everything has an app. Everything has a solution. And I right. think the guaranteed minimum income is an interesting idea, but it's not the solution in itself. It's not right. going to solve everything. And in, in, in today's political climate in America, it's unimaginable. I mean, it's possible in Switzerland. It's possible in Finland feels or like Estonia. Communism. It does. I, I, every time they push it, I'm like, it feels like it feels like... Yeah. Welfare. Like, and, and of course, which is a dirty word. In this and country. it will be certainly perceived in this Absolutely. country as welfare. So. They have new names for it, but it feels like. But what is interesting is, and, and I interview some of the people in the book, uh, that there are some more responsible VCs, for example, like Albert Wenger in, uh, from Union Square Ventures mm-hmm. in New York. I mean, he gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some of the more kind of what you might think of as adolescent Silicon Valley types, they're beginning to embrace the idea of guaranteed minimum income. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Okay, the next one? Surveillance capitalism. Yes. Someone I had love to remind that word. me of that. Well, it's not, unfortunately, it's not mine. Someone else came up with it. The surveillance capitalism, which is the product of the dominant business model in Silicon Valley, which is give away the product and watch everyone and what they're doing. Right. Google and Facebook are the classic That's examples. That's what they do for a living. Um, so the way to challenge this, I think, is through innovation. I think m- much of your audience will be entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. The real opportunity today is not a regulatory one, but an innovative one. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the example, for example, of the car industry. In the 1950s, the American car industry dominated the world. They, they had enormous market share. 20 years later, the American car industry had collapsed because mm-hmm. they produced uh, cars which were death traps. And Ralph Nader exposed this. And you saw the rise of the German car industry, which was predicated on safety. I think we're at a similar time in the digital economy. I think consumers are, will and are coming round to the recognition that this business model is not in their interest. Right. And what we need are entrepreneurs to come up with new ideas. I have some examples of companies mm-hmm. trying to pioneer, it's hard, but trying to pioneer new business models that aren't that, dependent on that the aren't slot pre- machine of attention. Yeah, which are, but also aren't predicated on big data. Right. So that, you know, we'll give you our stuff for free, you give us your data. We know more and more about you. And, you know, you'll, you'll Facebook people will say, well, it's not really like that, but it is really like that. When mm-hmm. it comes down to it, that's why these companies are so profitable. Mm-hmm. And I think surveillance capitalism is problematic on many different levels. It's certainly problematic, obviously, on a political sense. Mm-hmm. Snowden exposed that. But commercially, uh, it doesn't work. And I think in 30 or 40 years, it will be obvious that it doesn't work. It's mm-hmm. always We always take everything for granted. And then when it gets undermined, it seems obvious to us that it didn't work. 
But this model, in my view, doesn't work. And that's why some of the larger companies are actually better position. I think Apple is better positioned than Google or Facebook. And I would really, you know, I think Mark Zuckerberg has been rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic with these latest Mm -hmm. reforms of Facebook. (laughs) I would like to see him really acknowledge the problem and deal with it directly and come up with radical solutions. Well, it's interesting. They, they, they are slow as they roll these things out. Facebook's always notorious. You know that. Every, every crisis yeah, they have but they, they, talk, they boast about, you know, moving fast and breaking things. No. As long as they're breaking other people's things, <laughs> they need to break their own stuff, right? I actually was, um, yeah, I was, uh, I use the thing, they move fast and break things. They've broken enough things. They need to fix them now. And you're yeah. right. They should break their own things. I, I, I suggested they close down when they had that issue around anti-Semitic at, being able to search. Just close down the system for a week to, as the symbolics close. Like, yeah. We're going to close it down and come up with and hack our way into a solution tomorrow. And that's why I'm not convinced. I, I've, I don't know if you said it in this interview, but I've, I've heard some of your other conversations mm-hmm. where 2018 is going to be the year where all it changes. I'm not sure if they still get quite the depth of the crisis. Oh, I think they're starting. They thought it was a PR crisis. I, I've been yelling at them both publicly and privately for a while now. But we haven't had, when it comes to data, we haven't had... We've barely had Exxon Valdez, let alone yeah. Chernobyl. Right, that's a fair point. I, it was interesting because a year ago I had a conversation with a pretty prominent Facebook executive, not a name you would know, uh, but uh, he called me hysterical when I was talking about this. You mean funny or paranoid? Uh, no, paranoid. Uh. Like, and, of course, I was like, I don't think so. I think people are – it's problematic. And I was more worried about the Russian stuff. I thought that would get more attention, and, of course, it has. But on the other side, you can't blame them for everything. It's, real, no. it's, it's citizens using these tools, by the way. Yeah, and it's consumers – again, it's, it's part of the kind of great seduction. My first right. book was originally called The Great Seduction mm-hmm. before the cult of the amateur. Um, but it's part of this great seduction that Silicon Valley, I think, has, has, has orchestrated on the world where you can have everything. You, you can have incredibly good products and they can be free and you can love them and we're benefiting the world and we're benefiting you. But the reality, of course, is none of those things are true. Mm-hmm. It's true you can have great products and it's true they can be free, but they're not really free. Mm-hmm. Consumers have become the products and they need to wake up. We yeah. have a responsibility. We can't just blame other people. That's, That's exactly right. part also of a broader cultural crisis right. if we always right. blame everyone else. So we blame Wall Street, we blame Obama, we blame Trump, now we blame Silicon Valley, and that's not the way out of this problem. That's a very good point. I think it's 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 hard for people. They feel like they're acted upon a lot of the time. And sometimes I'm like, you don't have to use it. You don't, I have to. Like, there's someone was complaining the other day about Amazon, like, ruining retail. I go, and you use it all the time because it's better. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's part uh, of the, the sort of the hysteria. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, this isn't maybe going to make me very popular mm-hmm. with your listeners mm-hmm. or with you, but I think this is also part of the hysteria around network neutrality. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a 16-year-old daughter. She told me that her school has only ever come out on strike twice. Mm-hmm. The first was when Trump was elected, which mm-hmm. I understand. And the second was over network neutrality. Ah. But it's this idea that somehow everyone has the right to free internet. And yeah. if you take it away, um, then then there's some sort of crisis. Yeah, now, of course, network neutrality isn't really about taking it away. Yeah. But it, it, it does yeah. reflect our sort of mentality that we... And, and, and we it comes owed. back to your point about socialism. You know, America isn't socialist until it is. Yes, it's a fair And point. so we have socialism when it comes to the internet. I, and it, we have socialism when it comes to free shipping. But yeah. that's about it. <laughs> that's 
socialism. For, it, I was at a dinner party the other day, and a Comcast person was there, and they, it was you know there was arguments about net neutrality. Of course, this is what happens at dinner parties in San Francisco, <laughs> um, and the Comcast actually got real like exercises. Like you know what, you can stream the Crown right now from your phone, and you're still complaining like at a really low price. Like it was very funny. I think they it was actually they'd had it. Like it was very funny. It was a very funny. And I get I get there's lots of sides to this, and I think it's. You know, they think of these major major companies have been built on the backs of this stuff and have benefited enormously from Netflix to, to YouTube to others. And but I do think that in fifty years we're going to look back at this period, and just as we look back now in the middle of the nineteenth century, and we saw terrible pollution, and we saw eleven-year-olds mm-hmm. working in the factories, we're mm-hmm. going to think, what were we doing? Right. Why why did we embrace an economy where we became the product? Right. That's very true, which has been going on for a while. And the real opportunity is with innovation. It's right. not shutting this stuff down because right. there, there are kids out there probably listening to this who are going to come out with interesting new ways mm-hmm. of creating business models around great digital products that mm-hmm. will get beyond this. That's, that's the real danger of Google and Facebook, right. are innovators who think beyond them. Just as Google did it with Microsoft. Right. So the same will happen Absolutely. Uh, in the next chapter. All right, the next, the last one? The last one is lack of civility, oh, general... Good God. Fake news. Fake news. Well, I, I think it's a one. mix of all these things. Uh, in, in the first examples, we talked about the role of regulation. We talked about consumers. We talked about um, innovation. And we talked about education. Mm-hmm. In my general argument in How to Fix the Future, I argue that there are five pillars which we've always used for fixing society. Uh, Regulation, innovation, consumer action, education, and finally, and perhaps most importantly, citizen activism. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I invent a new term. Uh, We all know on this show, Moore's Law, Gordon Moore's Law. Mm -hmm. I come up with another Moore's Law. Not Roy Moore. No, Thomas Moore, the author of uh, Utopia, uh, which reflects our need and responsibility to make the world a better place. So when it comes to cleaning up our culture. We all have a responsibility. There certainly is a role for regulation and innovation. Consumers have a role in making sure that the products are better. I use examples of other industries. The food industry, for example, in the Industrial Revolution, the kind of food that was being produced was disgusting Mm -hmm. and incredibly unhealthy and overpriced. Uh, Over the last hundred years, consumers have pushed back Now we have Whole Foods. Now, of course, Whole Foods is obviously owned by Amazon. That's another story. But consumers have been much more demanding. Mm -hmm. And I think we can have better quality products, more civil products. But we all have a responsibility to behave ourselves. And one of the chapters I go to, I have two kind of middle chapters in the book, one in Estonia and one in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And both these countries, which have very different political cultures and histories, uh, they have much more civil cultures. People are Mm -hmm. behaving themselves much more. That's partly because I think you no longer have anonymity online. It's partly because people feel more responsible. But I think um, we need to look at other countries. One of the challenges, I think, and I argue in the book, is is not to look inwards. Silicon Valley needs to look at other examples of other cultures, Singapore and Estonia in particular, Mm -hmm. which are beginning to develop more civil digital societies. Although you have to wonder if it's 
you know, you think there was just an article in the New York Times about India now eating fast food, France eating. We we, mm. we infect everything versus the other way we around. We do. <laughs> you know, the U.S. infects things. Like, all incivility could go worldwide just because we're Although so I don't know if it. Americans invented incivility. No, of course I mean, not. I'm the from British England. We, really. we are the British, proud of being let's just, I would like, say the British. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes are, the French. My brand the is, French, really. Yeah, yeah the British. The, the French and the all British in different Europeans. ways. You're insulting Europeans. Um, but With your duels and... Things like that. But I think it's a mistake to think America always is infecting the world and that everything begins in America. I think what you're seeing with digital society, or at least what I argue in the book, is new models for new social contracts, new way of organizing the data relationship between government and citizens is actually being developed elsewhere. And yeah. Even India now, in some ways, is pioneering stuff which... Uh, America isn't doing. I mean, America is so stuck because of its political paralysis, because right. of the dysfunctionality of its political but system. again, we also do have a president who engages, is absolutely the poster child for this behavior, right. like, and is benefiting from it, presumably. Of course, n he's not, but he but is. he's more of an effect than a cause, isn't it, do you think, absolutely. Of, of the general crisis? I think he's taken tools that were created and using them in the worst possible way well. I, you know what I mean? You cannot you cannot deny the impact. He's created distraction, persistent lying works. You know, he's just doubling down on the negative parts of all these tools. I think it's also important to understand, I try and make this argument in the book, that we have a new kind of international system uh, germinating. In, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century, the Cold War was premised on democracy versus authoritarian or totalitarian government. In the digital 21st century, we have this chasming, increasing chasm between supposed free societies and then a country like Russia, which has become a, a, a troll state, mm -hmm. which is using trollery to, mm -hmm. to and investing in trolls, mm -hmm. buildings full of trolls to undermine its enemies. Sure. And then the appearance, which is, I think is most worrying of all, of a kind of digital, nine, uh, digital big brother in China, mm -hmm. uh, a true dystopian state. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the, the digital revolution is pioneering a, a new kinds of kind of ideological division in mm -hmm. the world, which is very challenging, interesting, and worrying all in right. the same time. Uh, but these tools have certainly been much abused, I think, uh, or can are easily abusable. And I think a lot of the people who created them didn't, Either they didn't anticipate fully how they might be used or they didn't care. But I think it's also important to remember that America still has the potential to build a digital democracy mm -hmm. and America still is a positive model when compared both with China oh, and Russia. Yeah. yeah, but that's sort of low bar. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, what's well, your model? Where you China? travel around the world? What have you seen that uh, works? I think that... I think that people have lost their minds in this country at this point. But outside America, where should America look for models for fixing this stuff? Um, it's hard to say because I think there's a natural human instinct to um, probably Europe, probably Europe in many ways. Denmark? Uh, well, they're also nice in Denmark. Um, I think it's hard because I, it's very compelling. Fear and hate is very compelling for a lot of people, and it's a way to blow your steam off. It's, it feels it becomes. It's also it has elements of addictiveness to it too. So it's you know people know this about me. I don't drink or smoke or anything else, but I got to say I feel addicted to the news cycle in a way that I 
imagine what it feels like. To but, have. That, that, but I'm not sure that addiction in itself is a bad thing, as long as you keep up with it. It's uh, it, it, the problem when the, the addiction becomes n- n- narcissistic, where right. you live in an echo chamber and you believe all the lies that your own side puts out and right. you're not open to any kind of discussion. Right. But I think there's something about it that's dangerously addictive, that all of them. all of them, You can feel it. There's you, You're like something's gone real wrong. And I was just actually talking to someone like, how, how do you turn it back once you've... That's true. But then but we had McCarthyism and then right. we didn't, but, right? But to be so, fair, and, I, and I'm the last person really should be defending the digital revolution, but to be fair, television has been as much responsible thing. as doing for the... Yep. You know, MSNBC and Fox are as responsible, well, certainly Fox. It's twitchy, it's twitchy reactiveness uh, that I think is the problem everywhere is twitchy reactiveness almost everywhere. And I think it, social media has only made that... You don't consider things like you move from from books and newspapers to twitchy, and, and that's why the Facebook reform I think is so problematic because they're actually burrowing further and further into their hole. Mm-hmm. If all we do is see what our friends say and think and the right. links they give, then what becomes of the middleman? What becomes of some sort of objective version of the world? We just hear what we want to hear, mm-hmm. and that's Absolutely. the really troubling thing. All right, we're here with Andrew King. We're talking about his book, his latest book out, which is about the Internet. It follows a number of other books. It's called How to Fix the Future. It's talking about solutions to the problems caused by the digital revolution. When we get back, I want some predictions from Andrew about a range of things. Today's show is brought to you by Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can create a beautiful website to showcase your work, promote your business, announce an upcoming event, and so much more. Customize the look and feel of your site with just a few clicks using their gorgeous design templates. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. You can buy a domain and choose from over 200 extensions. And Squarespace offers free and secure hosting. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. But if you do need help, Squarespace offers award-winning customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Are you ready to make your great ideas stand out? Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code DECODE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com to start your free trial and then use the offer code DECO to save 10%. Today's show is brought to you by Simply Safe, the fastest growing home security company in the nation. They now protect more than 2 million people. Here's some exciting news Simply Safe has just released a brand new home security system. This system has been completely rebuilt and redesigned. They've added new safeguards to protect against power outages, downed Wi-Fi, cut lines, bats, hammers, and everything in between. The all-new Simply Safe was redesigned to be practically invisible with powerful sensors so small you'll hardly notice them. But you know who'll notice them? Intruders. Simply Safe spent years building this system. They added so much, but you still get the same fair and honest price. 24/7 protection for only $15 a month, and there's no contract. It's smaller, faster, and stronger than anything they've built before. But supply is very limited. Visit simplysafe.com slash decode now to order. That's S-I-M-P-L-I. And then the word safe.com slash decode to protect your home and family today. Simplysafe.com slash decode. 
We're here with Andrew Keene. He's written a new book about how to solve problems that the Internet has created. It seems like 2017 was the year we didn't love the Internet so much. Uh, Andrew's got a new book out um, where he's proposing solutions. Um, his one of his first books was called The Internet is Not the Answer. This new one is How to Fix the Future. Um, let's talk about the future. Where do you imagine it going? We just talked a little bit about some of the issues you brought up. Um, but let's talk about where you imagine the future future, the short-term future, the no, middle-term, well, and the long-term. That's a big term. question. I know that. Well, yeah. Andrew, you're a big yeah. thinker. You can yeah. handle it. The future? It's not like it's not right. a road. Where, where do you, where, what happens this year with all these, these? All these companies keep trooping up to Capitol Hill. There's issues in Europe. There's all kinds of regulatory this and that. Do you imagine any regulatory actions anywhere? I don't. I think the U.S. government's going to punt on it. I think that some of the stuff going on in Europe will begin to have some relevance. I think, for example, the General Data Protection Act that Mm -hmm. is starting this year will make it very clear that the kind of surveillance capitalist Mm -hmm. economy that we've taken for granted for the last 25 years doesn't work Mm -hmm. and is, at least in terms of this new law, illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the the growing calls for antitrust regulation or at least investigation and conversation in the U.S. will grow more and more. I think you already got people like Jonathan Taplin, um, who are very credible, uh, Hollywood music people, uh, you got Franklin Foe, just mm-hmm. came out with an important book yeah, about did. this. Uh, so, uh, and Noam Cohen, the ex-New uh, York Times reporter, I know he's been on your show. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I'm, whether it's, tw- I, you know, the, it's the old cliche in Silicon Valley, we always assume that the immediate future is, uh, what, what, what's the quote, the, the immediate future is going to happen. And we always, mm-hmm. uh, we always overestimate the short term right, and the underestimate the long term. So right. I'm not going to sit here and make a fool of myself and make predictions about 2018 because I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But what I would predict that in the next two or three years, the kind of trends that we're talking about are going to manifest themselves. Um, and I think Steve Case was right in his third wave book. Yes, he did a little while ago. He, was, uh, he really I think did anticipate w- What this. he understood is that we're in a new stage, the political stage. Right. Um, and need at, the government's yeah, cooperation. Where you need the, and you don't have, you know, Eric Schmidt basically running the, the, the White House. Mm-hmm. We have a situation where it's a challenge, where there are other voices, where, 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 where Silicon Valley now is no longer the, the sort of apple in most American citizens' eye. And they're going to have to work hard like Wall Street and like any other industry to get what they want. And increasingly, I think politicians will discover, and I don't think this is necessarily a good thing. I, I'm certainly wary of this, but I think they'll discover Silicon Valley as a punching bag. You're mm-hmm. going to see people well, like Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. and Bernie Sanders suddenly wake up to the recognition. Cory Booker f- already has. Right. That the, five largest, look, the five largest companies and the wealthiest companies in the world, none of them are banks, none of them are from Wall Street. They're all tech companies. Mm-hmm. And the incredible wealth here and the incredible disparities and the impact on the local economy, you're already seeing it with Gavin Newsom. Right. You know, there's no one in Silicon Valley, no one in the Bay Area who has historically been more in, uh, excusing the pun here, uh, more in bed with, with tech than Gavin. Mm-hmm. But even he now is beginning to distance himself. And mm-hmm. he made a famous speech at, at UC Berkeley, the graduating ec- uh, engineering school last year, saying, you've got to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. You've got to be accountable. So right. the political atmosphere is changing sharply. Mm-hmm. And you have people like Roger McNamee and Tristan Harris mm-hmm. and more and more Silicon Valley insiders who are waking up to this and realizing that 
they need to be much more vocal and responsible. And how, what is the impact on? Because initially the reaction could be because they're quite stubborn people. It's like we'll PR our way out of this. I think there is a, an inclination of them to say. I mean, I've gotten calls recently like, hey, you got to calm down on this stuff. I'm like, mm, I don't think so. I think I'm not going to calm down. And it's a, it's it's more complicated. And, you know, you want to be a reasonable person. Like, you don't want to be like, as you said, a Luddite. But at some level, you, it's it's even like walking, you know, when you walk around San Francisco, and I'm, this is a visual thing, and you see the extreme homelessness next to the right. extreme wealth, you cannot help but say something's amiss, like the people living on... In, yeah, they, and it's they, only going to, again, if you want to make right. predictions about the future, I wouldn't make this about 2018, but certainly in the next five years. You know, Scott Galloway is saying big tech's ready for a yeah. fall. Right. I think big tech is ready for a PR fall. Mm-hmm. They're ready for a fall in terms of their reputation. Mm-hmm. But we're only at the beginning of this thing. Mm-hmm. AI, Internet of Things, self-driving cars, right. blockchain, automation, everything Robotics. is about to change. I, I still think we're in the very earliest stages of the technological revolution. I agree. So the idea that big tech is is about to take a fall, I think, is a profound mistake. No, and, I think. And the idea that somehow big tech will be put back in its cage and that the, the old show will carry on is absolute nonsense. The world is dramatically changing. A hundred percent. But I think the stuff they're addressing now does run in, as you said, to people that don't agree with them and don't think they. Well, I think when it, I think your point about PR is an interesting one. I think PR people in, in the Valley, again, you know this better mm-hmm. than I do. I mean, they're incredibly annoying mm-hmm. <laughs> and they think they control the world. And they've had it very easy for 25 years. They've had nothing to deal with. Right. They've been basically being given softballs for mm-hmm. 25 years. Now they're going to have to grow up. Mm-hmm. Now they're going to have to realize they're going to have to learn from the PR people at banks and, and, and car manufacturers. Oil companies. And oil companies and big pharma companies and, are, and understand that they're no different from them. And actually they're more powerful and increasingly in the public eye, they're seen as the problem, not the solution. Well, interestingly, it's such an interesting disconnect of how they view themselves. Like I remember when I took a communication class, one is how you how you perceive yourself, how others perceive you, how you perceive others perceive you, and how you really are. There's different ways. Um, I think they perceive themselves still as change makers and world changers and helpful. They perceive that that's their, they look in the mirror and that's what they see. Well, I have to admit, um, you asked me about my career and you didn't ask me a question which sometimes people ask me, why did you change your mind? Why did you mm-hmm. go from being an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. very pro-tech, to being a critic? And I think one of the, the reasons was I just got so sick of all the PR shit, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of nonsense, this, you know, touchy-feely, good-feeling stuff that is completely wrong. Right. Um, and Except I think you miss one thing. It's not PR. They believe it. That's, that's it, you know, sometimes well, I'm I don't talking know, about the oil. PR people don't believe it, do you think? I for a long time, yes. It's a very true believer culty kind of thing. Like when you're talking to a, a Wall Street person, you know they know what they are. You know what I mean? Like you mm. have a What about that woman Hollywood. at uh, Apple, the one who ran the show there under jobs? What was her name? Oh, Katie Cotton. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. did she know it? She was, you know, one thing time she said to me, and I really did appreciate it. I thought she was, she, you know, she had diff- people had different opinions about Katie. But she says, I'm just here to sell cell phones. Like, that's my job. And but she I never like, said that publicly, right? No, but, it, like, I think she kind of did. Like, I think she kind of did. She was sort of like, we're not here. We're here to sell cell phones. And I think what that was What about really, Elliot? What's Elliot? Elliot Trigg. At, uh, <laughs> why are you laughing? Oh, he's just Elliot. What does that mean? Well, you know, he he's political. It? I think they understand the, the challenge. I do think he understands the challenge. I just don't think he likes some of the discord on against them. They're, they're sort of shocked by people who disagree with them. And it's not the same thing as dealing with people who are 
they're actually almost visibly personally hurt. It's a very different kind of encounter than you would get with someone from Hollywood. They get it. They get what the fight is. You know what I mean? And they get the— they're, they're, But I think they're different. I mean, you know these people better than I do. They're but, not— But, but someone like Larry Page, I would think, is a— is a believer, whereas yes. someone like Sergey is—he's a much more worldly character. He actually understands the problems. Absolutely. I think some of them, the penny is dropping for absolute sure. But I think they start off. What I always think about is the people who we're dealing with founders, and therefore they're more religious, you know, mm. versus like like if you remember, if you go back and read about sort of Tesla and Edison, it was a religious war between them. Like, and that's right? yeah, and that's why they're my founders. Book, but let, let, let's again, Cara, be. Historically, I know you want to talk about the future, but to talk about the future, you have to talk about the past. Right. And in my book on morality and getting these people to grow up, um, I, again, bring up the example of 19th century industrialists who were incredibly rich and often rather cruel in their mm-hmm. business lives, who, who reinvented themselves. So a Carnegie... Mm-hmm. Who, whose business career was certainly wasn't exemplary was in a moral sense. Right. But then he spent the second half of his life investing in infrastructure and libraries. Right. And I think the, the, the guy who is the most Gates. interesting and, well, I think Gates is a bit of a stereotype, but I think the one who, and I hope he's listening to this, although I'm sure he's too busy, is, is Bezos, because mm-hmm. I think he's a mensch. He's mm-hmm. a grown-up. He's mm-hmm. incredibly he's smart. Spanner. He was an adult he, when he started. Yeah, but he's not a geek. He's not mm-hmm. like Paige. Mm-hmm. He understands it. He's the richest man in the world. And I think, and I'm wary of throwing around phrases like a moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. If anyone has a responsibility, it's him because mm-hmm. he has the resources, the vision, the intelligence. Right. And he ha- I don't believe he's drunk the Kool-Aid. No. His company is different from the others as well. It's yeah. certainly not ideal in their labor mm-hmm. practices. Right. Uh, but someone has to lead. You know, Benioff has done sure. an interesting yeah. job, but I don't think he has the profile of a Bezos. And Bezos right. knows now that he has to become a philanthropist. Well, he think- made that famous tweet asking people how he should give his money away. But he knows. He didn't tweet at the beginning of Amazon saying, should I have, you know, Amazon Web Services? Should I have e-commerce? Right. Right. He knows this. He has to take I responsibility. I, but the, the difference is Bezos was always an adult. He started as an adult. And so a lot of these But that's people, a good thing. Yeah, no, 100%. So it shows I was, there are I was, adults. I was just talking to someone, and I think I was talking about Apple, and I go, one of the pleasurable things is they're adults. Like, you're talking to adults. They, yeah. know, they know what they're responsible for. They, but Jobs listen, wasn't listen, an adult. I think he knew what he was doing. I think, I, I, think, I, I agree. They, they do all kinds, all of them, every single one of these But if Jobs was around now, I don't think he would have, he was completely uninterested in any philanthropy. No, not at all. But I think that he would have changed. I do. I think you he, do? Yes, I do. I think he was changing. He was becoming. He was becoming different. I think mm, understanding I think the weight of history. I'm I'm waiting for someone to lead, and the, the person who is Basis, best. I would agree. Best positioned, right. and who has the the ability. And I really admire what he's done with the Washington Post. Right. That's that was an interesting move. Yeah. That was. I'm trying to get someone to buy the New York Times. Are you? Are who could buy it? Uh, I think Lorraine Jobs would be amazing owner of it. Yeah. She's got commitment to social justice and all kinds of things, and would be has so certainly the has the money. Salzburgers don't have the resources. You think? I, what, what, think about this. I suggest this on stage. Like, what if it was just a billion dollar investment for a certain part of it? Like, what would what would I asked Dean Baquet this? What would you do with a billion dollars? And he's like, I can think of a lot of things I do. But it would certainly relieve pressure on that company financially. Yeah, but on and the other hand, you wouldn't want to transform it's the New York charity. Times into the Guardian yeah, where they don't have a business. No, but model. it's not a charity. It's they they would have a bit. It's not. It's it's the idea of 
what's wrong with investing in this? Like, think of it as it's not, don't just give up that it's a, that it's a lost cause as a business. So Lauren Jobs, you think has the vision? I think she's, no, I I think she'd be a good owner. I'm trying to, I was trying to think, you know, there was a point a couple of years ago, many years ago where, where I think Eric Schmidt did look at the New York times when they were having all those financial troubles. Mm. Um, I would, I would, she's a very interesting person. I think she's just recently been investing in media. She bought the Atlantic. She's, invested in a whole bunch of media properties. Uh, she's obviously interested in the space, and she understands that it's a— uh, What about Peter Thiel? Shouldn't he buy it? Oh, that would be interesting. I don't <laughs> that think would so. be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's someone who's—you know, it's got to be in the, the political arena of the Salzburgers and stuff like that. I just, it should be interesting. It would be interesting what you—not maybe a billion dollars, but what would you do with a half a billion dollars? And it's not—again, it's not in a charitable way, because I think Bezos is doing— at least, I don't think it's ever going to be a big, big business, but it certainly could be a viable business that has enormous impact, I guess. Well, I'm more and more influenced. I, I have to admit that I, I spend much more time on the Post site now than the yep. New York Times site. Yep. I well, think the Post is b- becoming more global. I think New York, the problem in New York Times is it's always been very provincial, very news. I want them all to survive. I, I, I worked at the Washington Post for a long time. I don't know if you know that. Back in I the do day. know. Yeah, back in the day. Um, I love what they're doing. I love their – someone was making fun of their democracy dies in darkness, but I love it. It's like flashy and fun and like – And what about the journal? How do you think they're doing? Oh, awful. Just awful. I don't think they have a vision. I don't think they have a vision. I think they jump from – I don't think they have a vision under Rupert Murdoch. Not at all. I can't see what it is for sure. They've always been a great newspaper, but I don't think they're as great as they were. And they certainly um, – you know, the leadership has problems. Although recently they've been trying to Although be- to be fair to the journal, I think they have been certainly more vocal in their critique of Silicon Valley than the Times or the Post. Uh, Historically. Sort of, yes, yeah, sort of. I mean, maybe it reflects Murdoch's own problem with the business Yeah, he just wants to buy Yahoo to or he, just, he was using it as a cudgel. Like, I want to get this and I want it, it, it's to— not, It's not—to me, it's not a well-thought-out theoretical— Thing. It's more like I just don't think it's as smart as it was. I just don't, I, and it's not. I don't have any like we had. We had some issues with them, but I used to think of the journal as much more uh, thoughtful. I, I thought Paul, uh, who ran it for years, was fantastic. I'm not as enamored with the new editors. I think they're very transactional, and I find I think they have a great opportunity to really do some. And they believe me, there's so many great journalists there, so I don't want to insult all of them. I do think the the post certainly has become emboldened and in a good way under two things, a leader, uh, a leader like Marty Barron who runs it and then an owner who really Yeah, and I, and I don't, you know, some people say, oh, well, it didn't cost much for Bezos. The, the, for, so for Bezos, it's not money, it's no. attention. It's attention. It's upon an opportunity. He could do anything he wants. He can spend his money a, in any way. He's not And abusive. he chose to invest yeah. in the post. I mean, my, my last book was incredibly critical of Amazon. It yeah. had about five pages where my publisher mm-hmm. was like, terrifying, you really should write this. And I did. Yeah. And the best review I got was in the Post. Hmm, interesting. I think there. I think it's an interesting time. I just uh, you know, the editor. I couldn't. Uh, he's just. He's become. Um, it's given him the fuel he needs to do a really good job. And I think he's being very. Care- I think they're being very careful. I think they're being. They're doing great journalism, and that's all. And that's all you need. And they have an owner who's also adding to innovative business stuff and giving new ideas and fresh ideas. And I. And, but in a way that is helpful versus, hey, let's digitize everything. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. I well, I think the challenge with all, all these serious newspapers is, uh, is coming down to earth after Trump. Right, right. Yeah, what happens in then? It's still an interesting time. I think it's invigorated. This is, Trump is certainly for all the, the well, Trump's attacks. definitely and, been good for the business model of the times. I mean, well, all the, of them. The, the, it's just, but it's also invigorated the staffs, although I think at some point they're getting exhausted by the whole thing. Right? At this point, I think every journalist who I know who's a political journalist is exhausted. Because mm. it's like literally a week ago was Bannon, right? <laughs> a week ago. A week ago. And now are we talking about that book? No, we weren't. 
In any case, uh, Andrew, this has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, let me, how would you sort of, so when we go to like the Ubers and the and everything that's going to, and AI and stuff like that, what's your, if you want to close on what your biggest worry would be? My biggest worry? Yeah, of all of the different things. I'm sorry you have to pick one, but I'm going to make you. My biggest worry of everything is that nothing is done. Mm-hmm. The biggest worry is that we drift into what Neil Postman called a technocracy, mm-hmm. a world where, you know, in a dystopian world where these companies are bigger, more powerful, wealthier than governments. Mm-hmm. And they're run by people who have drunk the Kool-Aid, who believe they're correct, who live in our echo chamber culture, and who confuse the public and the private good, as I think somebody like Mark Zuckerberg does, and believes that whatever is in their interest and their, the interest of their company is in the interest of the world. So ultimately, we have a world uh, run for and by big tech, a tiny group of people, maybe in Silicon Valley, maybe on the East Coast, maybe in India or China, maybe attached to government but who are creating a, a, what Huxley famously called a brave new world, right. one of a sort of a dictatorship of technology, which undermines democracy, undermines civilization, and ultimately uh, may even endanger us as a species. Mm, wow. All right, then, Andrew. <laughs> that was cheerful, wasn't it? I thought I was supposed to be the cheerful, cheerful guy. cheerful one. <laughs> and anyway, it was great talking. It was an incredibly thoughtful show, and thanks for coming. Um, if you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes. You can find more than 175 past interviews in whatever app you use to listen to this or on our website, recode.net slash podcast. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where I answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thank you to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. Hey, Rico Decode listeners, Ezra Klein here with a plug for my podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. It is a weekly conversation with the technologists, writers, and policymakers shaping our culture. People like Malcolm Gladwell, Tanasi Coates, Senator Cory Booker, and of course, Kara Swisher. You can find The Ezra Klein Show wherever you get your podcasts.